Let us now turn to Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll read verses 15 uh, through 23. Verse 15 to the end of the chapter, which is also our text for this evening. Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have seen in the past few weeks how this uh, chapter to this point has set before us uh, the riches of God's grace to us in Christ, the riches of uh, the grace of election that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, uh, the grace of, of adoption uh, in Christ that we should be uh, children of God, that he has predestined us to adoption to himself by Christ Jesus. And the grace of this uh, glorious inheritance that we have in him, uh, the grace of the promised Holy Spirit who has sealed us for the day of redemption, who is indwelling is the guarantee of that inheritance that we have. And uh, we've, we've looked at these rich doctrines of the gospel and also noticed that they're presented to us in the form of, of doxology and, and praise. Uh, the glory of God is revealed to us. And uh, these riches are to the praise of the glory of His grace or to the praise of his glory, as is repeated. God is greatly magnified in his grace, in his wisdom, in the wonder of his counsel, in the glory of his Son, in this marvelous revelation of his saving love in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the wonder of this revelation of God's glory inspires praise, but as we come to our text this eve, uh, evening, we also see that it inspires prayer. The prayer of thanksgiving. Paul gives thanks for this grace to the Ephesians, who, having heard the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation, they trusted in this Savior. And Paul gives thanks to God uh, for the fact of their faith. And uh, the evidence of that faith also in their love, faith and love, such uh, crucial 
indicators of a believing response to the gospel were evident in the lives of these Ephesians. So this grace inspires the prayer of thanksgiving, but it also uh, inspires prayers of expectation. The expectation of a deepening knowledge and assurance of this grace in their lives. And what we have before us here is an inspired example of prayer, and it's an example of prayer for, for the best of things, the greatest and the most important kinds of things that we can pray for, for ourselves and for others. And along with that, we have these expressions of reasons for, for confident expectation that our God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory or the glorious Father, will in fact give us all these things in Christ. And so that is reflected in our theme for this evening, that riches of grace inspire confident uh, prayer for great things. And we're going to look at those things for which uh, Paul praise, uh, beginning with uh, his prayer for their spiritual illumination. In our translation, uh, our text consists of, what, 15 through verse 23, eight verses. And uh, if you were to evaluate these verses very carefully uh, and, and took a look at their structure, and how they're put together, you might notice that actually there's only two sentences here. Uh, and the first sentence extends all the way from, uh, well, verse 15 to the end of verse 21. Seven verses, one sentence. And again, we might wonder how it all fits together. What's the main idea? What are subordinate clauses? How do we uh, distinguish the woods from the trees, so to speak, and, and understand the main points of uh, this passage? Well, verse 17 and 18a are important in answering that question because they zero in on what uh, Paul is praying for. And he'll elaborate on that, but really they're... Uh, expressed already in these opening verses when he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know. And then he elaborates on what the knowledge of God really involves, but it's a knowledge of God that is given through the enlightening work of the Holy Spirit. He prays for spiritual illumination. And it's important that we recognize that indeed it is a prayer for the inner work of the Holy Spirit. In uh, our translation, if uh, yours is similar to mine, the word spirit is in, is, it's in lower case. And that we might think that this then is a prayer for our own, uh, our spirit, a spirit of, of uh, wisdom, or illumination, but uh, it is properly capitalized in in uh, various other translations. Perhaps you have perhaps you have a translation before you where the S 
is capitalized, indicating that indeed the spirit of wisdom and revelation is a reference to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And certainly the Holy Spirit is is described and set forth in Scripture in many places in similar language. In John chapter 17, in Jesus' high priestly uh, prayer, uh, the Holy Spirit is is referred to, actually it's in John 14, but the Holy Spirit is there called the Spirit of Truth. In Isaiah chapter uh, 11, verse 2, uh, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Wisdom and the Spirit of Knowledge. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse or 2 verse 12 that we have received the Spirit who is from God that we might know the things that have been freely given to us. So it's the Holy Spirit that imparts wisdom and knowledge, discernment. It's the Holy Spirit who illuminates our minds and understandings as to the riches of God's grace. It is the Spirit of Christ with whom we have been sealed. And this prayer assures us of a divine power that is toward us indeed. And we're, we're going to look at that as, as Paul elaborates this power of God that is toward us as revealed in Christ and His exaltation. But this power of God toward us, it really uh, gets through to us, you might say. We really come to uh, appreciate it through a power that works in us. You see, without such power at work in us, we remain fools. Without the wisdom that the Holy Spirit imparts, we are foolish. Without the Holy Spirit's uh, work, there is no revelation that penetrates our thick minds. Or there is no light that shines in the world or that shines in the Word that enlightens our darkened minds. We live spiritually by a miraculous power. The Lord willing, we'll consider that further as we come to chapter 2 and this uh, wonderful statement that we who are dead in trespasses and sins have been made alive. And of course, that's by the power of the Holy Spirit, by whom we have spiritual life. And so we live spiritually by a miraculous power, but it's likewise true that we, that we thrive, that we, that we grow spiritually by the continuous, miraculous power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. In Psalm 143, the psalmist prays, Your spirit is good. Lead me in the land of uprightness. It is God's spirit by whom we are instructed and led, effectively taught the wonderful truth of God's word. And so Paul is praying for this inner work of the Holy Spirit and that prayer involves a prayer for a deepening then, a deepening heart knowledge. And again, we remember that Paul is, is writing to Christians. He's writing to those who have trusted in Christ. He's writing to those who have faith and exhibit Christian love. And that means, of course, 
that they already have been enlightened by the Holy Spirit. No one comes to faith apart from the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, making the things of Christ known to us effectively. And yet Paul prays for more. The life of the just is, or the path of the just is like the light that shines more and more until the perfect day. And if there is progress in the Christian life in terms of knowledge and understanding and practice, it's through the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit, deepening what we already know. That's kind of a testimony, isn't it, to our dullness, that we're not very quick, we're not very sharp when it comes to really uh, appropriating God's truth in a deep way. We're often forgetful hearers. And the things that we sincerely believe, they just don't exert the kind of power and they don't impact us the way they ought to, the way we'd like them to. And certainly the Christian life involves a, a process of sanctification and a growing in knowledge. But often that knowledge is not simply a matter of accumulating more information, but it's internalizing what we already know and believe, but in such a way that it has a greater effect upon our feelings and our, our, our thoughts and our actions. We're slow to learn. And in that connection, we could also reflect on the great patience and wondrous grace of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us as our teacher, so patiently bearing with our foolishness and ignorance and carrying us along from step to step. And also, we're confronted here with the often exciting work of the Holy Spirit that enables us to uh, grasp things on a deeper way in a way that involves a kind of discovery. Haven't you experienced that in your life? Things that you believe sincerely, truly, but then something happens in your life. It may be God's providential dealings with you, even difficult ones. It might be a sermon, it might be a seminar, it might be a book, and suddenly things that you already believe, believe they, they shine with a luster and there's a, a beauty and a power to them that you just didn't appreciate before. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Deepening our knowledge. The Christian life, in a sense, is a life of discovery. A discovery of things old and a discovery of things new. Or we might say that in the Christian life there is a continuous movement from our heads down to our hearts so that things we may have grasped on an intellectual level with a true faith come to have a greater impact and a more permanent dwelling at the center of our lives. And that ought to be very encouraging to think about. It ought to be encouraging to you young people to, to know that as years go by, you will love the Bible far more than you do today. And its precious words will be sweeter to you than they are today as you continue to feed upon the Word of God and the Holy Spirit continues to work in your hearts 
deepening your sense of the glory and the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ and what a wonderful Savior He is. Believe in that work of the Holy Spirit. Paul prays for it. Pray for it for yourself. Paul prays that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened. That's actually a, a rendering of this word in some other translations. Because the word understanding here is not simply a matter of the intellect, but it refers to kind of the, the center of our of our persons. And the Holy Spirit illuminates us deeply and inwardly. That's what Paul prays for. And notice thirdly under this point that it's a prayer for the growing knowledge of God Himself. That He may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. And again, these are Christians who knew God, who knew God truly by faith. But Paul prayer, prays that their knowledge of God might increase, that it might deepen. This is eternal life. Remember our Lord Jesus' prayer, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We might say that's the beginning of eternal life, but it's the ongoing life of God in the soul, an increasing knowledge of God. There's an expression of, of repentance in Hosea chapter uh, 6 that goes like this, Come and let us return to the Lord. For he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain. A beautiful passage that gives expression to this awakening to God with a hunger to to pursue the knowledge of God. It's the knowledge that is never static. Because our knowledge of God often deepens in the course of our varied experiences of life. And often through hardship, through hard providences, our view of God's providence deepens. Through our own varied experiences, we grow in our knowledge of God, but it's a knowledge that is never mastered. It's a knowledge that, that never grows old to us as the Holy Spirit continues to work in our lives. It's a knowledge that's never complete. In fact, we must say that it is a knowledge that will never be complete because the subject of this knowledge is infinite. It's inexhaustible. And the glory and the joy of of the life to come is beholding our God with an eternal fascination and increased grasp of His incomprehensible greatness and glory. Paul prays for their spiritual illumination by the work of the Spirit for a deepening heart knowledge, a knowledge of God Himself. And that leads us secondly to consider more of this experiential knowledge. You see, the, the knowledge of God is a knowledge of God in relation to ourselves. Theologians would say that, that we do not know God in Himself. We cannot plumb the infinite depths of God's being and in self-knowledge. 
We know him as he has revealed himself. We know him in relation to us. And that's the kind of knowledge that Paul prays for here. And there are three things. We might say there are three branches to this knowledge of God that he prays for. He prays that that they might know the hope of his calling. That's the first thing there in verse uh, 18, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. Now again, imagine that this is a question uh, in a Bible study class. Okay, you're studying the book of Ephesians. And the question on your handout is, what is the hope of God's calling? And you might look at this verse and maybe consult a, a, a commentary or so and reflect upon it. And in class, you might raise your hand and say, well, the hope of his calling is eternal life. Or it's the, the life of the new heavens and the new earth. It's, it's heaven. That's the hope of his calling. And the teacher says, very good. You know that. Next question. Do you think that's what's all involved here? Just being able to uh, give the answer and, and be able to say, oh, the hope of God's calling is eternal life. Well, that's an easy one. We already know that. Let's move on here. Is that what Paul is praying for? No, he is play, praying that they might increasingly be gripped and moved with the wonder of such grace bestowed upon them in calling them out of darkness calling them out of a condition in which they were headed for hell, calling them out of this kingdom in which Satan rules by his lies over the hearts of people, bringing them in to the kingdom of his Son. Even that word calling involves this wondrous power of God's grace in rescuing people. Effectual calling, it's sometimes called. It's, it's described in 1 Peter, where Peter says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. In other words, this calling is not simply uh, the, the gospel proclamation, but it's the gospel proclamation as it has entered their lives and brought them out of that kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Oh, you Ephesian believers, you've only just begun to grasp something of the magnitude of what it means to be saved by grace and to have eternal life, to have this sure hope of heaven, yes. To have that certainty of that life which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. You see, here is a kind of hope to sustain Christians in suffering. Here's a kind of hope that can renew our sense of purpose, that can, that can renew our joy in our Christian calling. But that involves a view of the Christian life that has a kind of future orientation, doesn't it? It's a view of the Christian life that, that uh, brings us to understand ever more deeply that we are sojourners. 
It's not our best life now. We're moving towards this inheritance. And God wants us to be convinced and convicted of its certainty and of its riches so that we, so that we are patient in troubles, that we persevere in this, in this spiritual battle that we're in. Because the hope of God's calling is an experiential, certain, blessed hope. And God is able to communicate a deeper knowledge and experience of that. And that involves, secondly, the riches of his inheritance in the saints. That's the second thing that uh, is involved in the knowledge of God and his relationship to us. To know that inheritance that he freely gives. It's described uh, there in terms of the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. What eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man to conceive. And we read a passage like that and we say, yeah, that's a description of eternal life and the life to come, and we know nothing of it. It's incomprehensible to us. Uh, we'll just have to wait and see. No, it's true that the glory and the riches of that glory are incomprehensible to us, and we cannot possibly grasp it until we arrive there. But at the same time, Paul is praying that we know more about it. And we might well ask the question, well, what does that, what does that actually mean? Well, I can, I can say that we can be confident, confident that it involves such things as uh, having a, a, a growing foretaste of the glory of the life to come. We might say perhaps a sweeter foretaste of that glory that awaits us as we worship together, as we join heart and voice in singing God's praise, as we enjoy the Sabbath rest in which we can draw near to God. And yes, remember that we are sojourners, that God has abundant provision for us, and uh, we experience something of the joys that will be perfected in heaven as we worship him. Or that in that connection we experience more of the fellowship and the love of the saints, right? It's the inheritance of the saints. It's not simply an individual thing. That we experience more of the fellowship and love of the saints that will mark our eternal and happy home. Or that our deepening knowledge of grace will will sharpen our appetites and longing for those ages to come that Paul describes in the next chapter when he says that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And as we have insights into the wonder of God's grace to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are learning more of the glory of that inheritance that awaits us when the, the mother load, if you will, of grace will be poured out on us. But we're learning to relate with growing expectation of what that will be like. And how does this come about in our lives? Well, the third thing that Paul prays that they might know with respect to God and his relationship to us is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us. 
How great is that power? Well, it's described in verse 21 or verse 20. According to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, it's resurrection power. And Paul prays that we might believe firmly in this power that will raise our bodies from the dead. In Romans 8, we read, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. I often thought that it's a mighty exercise of faith to stand beside an open grave and to watch the body of a loved one lowered into a deep, dark hole and to believe that that very body will be raised in glory. It's sown in corruption, sown in weakness. It'll be raised in power. It'll be raised in glory. It's like an occasion in which we ought to find ourselves asking, do, do we really believe in that? Well, as you grow in faith and the power of God is manifested in your inner life, you will believe in it more and more. And it will impart joy. And it will strengthen you. And it will shape your worldview. God's power will raise these lowly bodies to be like unto Christ's glorious power or glorious body by that power by which He is able to subdue all things to Himself. That's a power toward us. But there's more, right? That's only part of it. Paul does something that's quite characteristic here. It's uh, it's as if he gets started on uh, saying something about Christ's greatness, and then he just takes flight. He goes higher and higher. He elaborates more and more. He's talking about the power of God who raised him from the dead. And when he thinks of Christ raised from the dead, he thinks of him being raised up, 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 higher and higher to a place of exalted dominion over absolutely everything. Every name that is named, both in heaven and on earth. He's at the right hand of God. All things are under his feet. Psalm 8 has come to a glorious fulfillment already in the Lord Jesus. Psalm 8 speaks of man being created in God's image and given dominion over, over the beast of the field, the birds of the air. But what do we see? Do we see man really in a place of exalted dominion over creation? No. But we see Jesus by faith, who is made a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor, the right hand of God, all things under his feet. Not just things on earth, but things in heaven. There is no, there is no creaturely power in heaven that ought to impress Christians in such a way as to detract from their confidence and their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That was a real threat, right? In the ancient world, you can read about it in Colossians, a fascination with angels a fascination with these invisible spiritual powers at work in the world. And the danger is that they would start giving reverence or that they would fear or that they would somehow worship 
or give honor to angels at the expense of Christ. Because all these angels, whether they're fallen or upright, they're under his feet. They're under his dominion. There's no heavenly power that ought to impress us. There's no earthly power that ought to uh, terrify or impress these Ephesian uh, Christians living in this most important imperial city where there is emperor worship, where he's honored and acclaimed as God. Oh, he's no God. This great Caesar whom the Romans worship in their ignorance, he's under Christ's feet. He has absolute dominion over him. He has absolute dominion over the powers of this world. Whether it's Xi Jinping or President Biden or Prime Minister Trudeau or Putin or what's that little man over in North Korea? I forget his name right now. They're all under the power of Christ. That's important to remember, isn't it? Maybe it's because I'm an American but I was disappointed at the outcome of the elections this past week because I'd hoped that there would be some advance over the kind of agenda that seems to be causing a lot deal, a great deal of harm. I was disappointed in the outcome, but I was especially concerned and bothered by, by the reasons that were given why the Democrats did far better than was anticipated by many. And the reason, probably the number one reason, was a determination to maintain the right of people to take the lives of their unborn. And that's a sobering thing. Righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. And when it seems like an election gives testimony to the idea that maintaining such a right, actually advancing it, increasing it in many states, is more important than inflation. It's more important than secure borders or crime or drugs or whatever, whatever it might be. I shared with our prayer uh, meeting this past Saturday that in, in reading the account of the kings of, uh, of Judah, you get to uh, the story of Manasseh, this wicked king who filled Jerusalem with blood. That included the blood of his own sons whom he made to pass through the fire, he instituted this kind of idolatrous worship, but it also involved the blood of innocents in terms of prophets, those that spoke to him. Manasseh repented, right? When he was in chains, he repented. He was forgiven. This great sinner. And then his grandson was Josiah, this great reformer. Zealous for God. Restoring the worship of God. But in the days of his son, Jehoiakim, God determined that he was going to judge Jerusalem. He was going to send Babylon to carry them away. Why? Because great-grandpa shed innocent blood and filled Jerusalem with blood and God would not forgive them for that. It's just a solemn reminder of the fact that God is just and God is a judge who judges nations. And that's a sobering thing when it comes to the Western world and the, the trajectory of the moral condition of North America. But we ought not to be dismayed and disturbed as if somehow things have veered off course and the line of the tribe of Judah is somehow asleep at the switch or somehow unconcerned or uninvolved or 
not in charge. No, he's accomplishing his purposes. And that may be indeed to judge the nations. His glory is manifested that way, right? We read that in our call to worship. And it may be that it would be very good for the church to come under the cross of persecution and suffering for her purification, perhaps her growth. We don't know, but we know that Christ is head over all things. And he's head over all things for the church. For the church. And that should give us great expectations. We should expect the church's preservation because no powers in heaven or on earth can destroy her. No angelic powers, no earthly powers. And we must also expect her growth because not all the members of the church have uh, yet been called. And divine power will not only raise the bodies of the saints, but those who are yet dead in trespasses and sins will continue to rise from their spiritual death. And nothing will diminish or increase the number appointed to eternal life. And nothing can stop Christ from calling his sheep. And we ought to pray then for the conversion of people of all nations with expectation that Christ is, to go, is going to call many unto himself. Well, that's a prayer of faith in believing in such power. Maybe some of you were encouraged as I was in reading this one account in the, lay, the Last Word Indeed magazine of this endeavor of this uh, rather remote village in India to, uh, to build a well so that they'd have fresh, clean water in their village. And there's two instances of this, but I'll go right to the second one. It was a place in which, again, I I believe it was word indeed with with involvement in prayers of Christians that uh, initiated and were going to carry out this project. But the man that they hired to do it made all kinds of excuses. He was delaying. He wouldn't get started. And that was distressing to these Christians. And they met for prayer. And one night they prayed late into the night. And then they found like about 2 o'clock in the morning this... This foreman, this man who was in charge, he woke from his sleep and he was disturbed. His heart was troubled. He felt guilty for not getting this project going. So he woke up the crew and they got going at 2 o'clock in the morning. And 10 hours later, they had completed the task of hitting water and securing a well. And shortly after that, it began to rain and rain and rain, which meant that it would have been delayed for a very, very long time. But imagine the encouragement of these Christians. They prayed, and God acted. And how did he act? He woke this man up from sleep with a troubled heart. He has access to the inner life of people. Made him feel guilty and put him to work for his church. Well, isn't that a great example? Doesn't that encourage us to pray? With expectation that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think. Expect the power of God to achieve the purpose of his love. The church is His body, it says of our Lord Jesus Christ. The fullness of Him who fills all in all. And again, it's like here's a characteristic uh, way in which the Holy Spirit led Paul to phrase things in which he combines ideas which seem almost incompatible. Here is the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. True eternal God, united with our flesh, exalted in heaven. He fills heaven and earth. 
He fills all in all. And the church contributes to that fullness. Does that detract from the dignity and the self-sufficiency and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ? No, no, it magnifies it. What is the bridegroom without his bride? The shepherd without his sheep? The vine without its branches? The head without the body? So the exalted glory of the Lord Jesus Christ is full. It's completed by his saving, sanctifying, glorifying work in his church, in his body. Yes, that ought to indeed inspire our praise and our prayers with expectation. That ought to fuel our desires for a greater knowledge of God, a more practical, experiential, working, confident belief in his power. And by his grace, that can and will continue in our lives as we continue and follow on to know the Lord. Amen.